Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the announcement last night in Mar-a-Lago was as expected. POTUS run part three for President Trump. What did you think of his hour-plus-long offering last night? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Here's how he opened. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, and my fellow citizens, America's comeback starts right now. <laughs> yeah! Does He's it? Away. Does it? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot provincial line. I mean, he was disciplined. He didn't rip on any of his soon to be challengers. He focused on Biden. You know, it was he just reminded us how good our life was under President Trump. And so I felt like it was more to, of a State of the Union address because it was kind of boring. Sorry to say that, but it, it was a little bit boring. But you know, he didn't talk about January sixth, or he didn't talk about revenge. It was more about us, the people. Like this isn't his campaign, Dan. This is our campaign. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was, you know, I was not expecting that level of maturity that we got last night. And we do not have to endure what has taken place in Washington D.C. This is our country, our government, and the Carters of power, or our, they're our Carters. They're not their Carters. These are our Carters. And we are coming to take those quarters back. Give me my quarters. Give me <laughs> my quarters. My quarters of power, not your quarters of power. <laughs> what do we want? Our quarters. quarters. When do we want it? No. Uh, like, well, November of 2024. That's <laughs> what what did wanted. you think? Were you impressed? I mean, uh, you know. Bored? A little was, bit of both? It was buttoned down Trump. It was what I suggested he needed to do yesterday in yep. part, which is more like the State of the Union address Trump and not the campaign rally Trump. Uh, there were moments where he does what he does no matter what context, which is sort of to go off on a bit of a tangent, to take a bit of a, a detour, then come back to the script, uh, which is fine. You know, I thought it was fine. I thought it was solid. I thought he presented stability and he gave uh, a bit of a retrospective that transitioned into a prospective on 2024 and beyond if he were to be nominated and reelected. I think it went on too long. Oh, it went on. I mean, it, it reminded what he said it, it was the same when we went to go see 2000 Mules at Mar Largo. He was supposed to speak for five minutes. Well, he spoke for 47 minutes. Well, there's no there's no speaking for five minutes. OK, well, but that's not well, that happen. was the, the expectation we had. Right. And he said pretty much the same thing that he was saying last night, um, just but repeated it. And he was very measured and, and you know. 
it, it, it just Tom it, and his delivery. I mean, it's good to get into details on everything from border security to uh, and 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 the associated issues like the uh, drug cartels and uh, the fentanyl business that is leading to the deaths of so many Americans and parental rights and um, and uh, ending foreign wars, wars in foreign lands, and, you know, the the whole the, the inflation, K-12 through education, uh, street crime in America's major cities. I mean, he ran the gamut, and then he ran it again. And I think it just could have been tightened up and contained to 20 minutes and would have probably been more effective. I mean, even Fox News left him for a while. Well, and then they were going to come back, and then they came back, and he was talking about Eric Trump is the most, you know— uh, He's has more lawsuits filed against him than Al Capone. And Don, then, I think Don Jr. Don, the John Jr. Is, yeah. No, no, I, he said it was Eric Trump. Oh, Eric Trump um, stood up. Well, and... yeah, both of them. I mean, the, the combination of the two of them. Oh yeah, I mean, um, which is probably true. But but I mean, it just um, I don't know. It it felt uh, it felt a bit flat, tired. Yeah, it, I mean, and, I, 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 sort of after the twenty minutes and and then thirty minute mark, which I think is what's what what happens to anybody right. you just you know sort of the rules of thumb here keep it to 20 minutes and then the crowd was not so it's the mar largo crowd now mm-hmm. now that i've been there you've been there too it's a little more highbrow a little less you know gritty when he has his uh rallies in big towns well there was they're, a, they're more you know well there was enthusiasm yeah, there was clapping and everybody there's... was you know filming it on their cell phones and so forth but i don't know are you feeling? I mean, he still he still has the energy, and you can't blame him for making the same offering in twenty twenty two, looking to twenty twenty four that he made in twenty sixteen and twenty twenty. I mean, it was twenty sixteen. We had to drain the swamp. Right. We were draining the swamp. Things were getting better for Americans across, you know, every demographic. And then we got interrupted by the 2020 election, and now we seen we've seen what's happened in the last two years, and things have deteriorated considerably. Now let's get back to where we were pre-COVID. Is essentially his offering. And he reached out to many Americans because our number one issue, yeah, I care about the globe, but inflation. Well, generally, he I mean, just reminded us where we were. It's a, what would he say? National greatness agenda, a quest, not a national greatness agenda, and we were on our way. And then COVID interrupted, and he didn't really take any responsibility for how he handled that um, and the opening he gave Joe Biden, which would have been nice. But now we're on a quest to save our country. So it's it's basically let's get us back to the where we were because we were on the cusp of getting tired of winning before the pandemic set in. And then now Biden's two years, things are worse across the board national security, economic security, personal safety. So now let's get back to it. I mean, that is an offering. And it does remind people of what his record was, what he did accomplish, how things were going before the Biden interrupt us. But I just don't know if it's enough because of all of the scar tissue that's been built up in this relationship between Trump and Republican primary voters. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could always reach out to us via text at 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Now, for those who were critical of him making this announcement, despite the fact you've got this runoff 
for the Georgia Senate seat, uh, he did take the time to give a shout-out to Herschel Walker. Despite the outcome in the Senate, we cannot lose hope. And we must all work very hard for a gentleman and a great person named Herschel Walker, a fabulous human being who loves our country and will be a great United States Senator. Herschel Walker, get out and vote for Herschel, and he deserves it. Okay. You know, it's it's like he checked the boxes, but it seems insufficient for the damage he's done to himself. Is that fair? Yeah. It just doesn't seem like it's enough to make up for where we find ourselves and where he finds himself largely um, of his own doing. Not completely, but largely. Jim and Crown Point, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. You know, watching that, it's much like Jurassic Park. The first one was amazing, and then the second one, not so amazing. Um, his uh, his moment in time when he ran, everybody underestimated him. Now the Democrats have their knives out, and when he goes again, they, they know the plan. You know, they'll accuse him of being a pedophile again and all this stuff. Whereas you have a Ron DeSantis. Guy's not a billionaire. It's a better visual. He has three kids. His wife beat cancer. He knows the political side, and he is basically Trump. He can be Trump uh, to rule, but it's a much softer, and his kids aren't, aren't, won't be involved in the business. Uh, he won't be able to be attacked on that end. So I think you really have to look at DeSantis instead of Trump. Thanks for the call, Jim. Trump has never been accused of being a pedophile, so let's stop that right now. And Eric and Don Don Jr. were there, uh, and Ivanka Trump is not going to be part of her dad's 2024 campaign. Yeah, she said, um, I mean, she's not opposed to it. She just said, I'm I'm done with politics. I, what was the quote? While I always love and support my father going forward, I will do so outside the political arena. I'm glad to have had the honor of serving the American people. Be proud of the administration's accomplishments, so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, I think there, there's something to that. It's just tough to it's tough to make a sequel as compelling as the original, and uh, the third in a trilogy. Hmm. Uh. I mean, maybe uh, Sankovich's. I'm trying to think of trilogies that worked. That worked. Uh, Which one? Um, Girl and the Dragon Tattoo. I'm mm. trying. I'm trying to think. You know. Yeah, I don't. I just didn't really sustain. Huh. Hmm. I mean, so if anybody has a trilogy, trilogy where the third was as good as the first, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking maybe Sankovich is about the, you know, the yeah, Polish author with in. fire and sword. Uh, hmm, uh, Star Wars? No. Uh, mm, no. Didn't pack the punch the first one did. No. Or did it? Uh, Wait, Star Wars, Empire Strikes, Strikes Back, Back, and then Return of Return the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. Eh, I didn't really like Return of the Jedi. It's kind of like Return of the Jedi in a way. Yeah, and it, it bit hmm. metaphorically speaking, folks. And then there was, and then was Spaceballs the fourth. <laughs> I can't remember Spaceballs. Uh, that was the best movie. Paul, God, I love that. Paul movie. and New Lennox. Hi guys, thanks for taking my call. Remember when uh, Biden announced his presidential candidacy? It was kind of like they were maybe going to indict him on something. Why did Trump? Uh, announced his presidential candidacy this early. I don't think anybody's talking about that. And or is he afraid of something? I don't know. But the thing that uh, freaked me out the most, that creepy guy, uh, 
in the owl outfit. What was his name? Charles Schwab. Who do you want him or do you want Trump? That's a good comparison there. Uh, uh, thanks for the call, Paul. Well, so, um, yeah, the, people are talking about that. The timing of it. One is to try to clear the field or clear some of the fields, most notably DeSantis. The other is, yeah, the Justice Department, uh, what the Justice Department might do per the raid on Mar-a-Lago. And now if you would move to indict him, he could use that to his advantage politically. So it puts a bit of a chill on Merrick Garland and the gang over at DOJ. It makes it a much more complicated proposition to move forward with an indictment. I think there's something to that. Tina and Joliet. Hi, guys. So uh, yesterday I called and I said that, um, you know, that uh, I was annoyed with Donald Trump and I would walk away. I am back on the Trump train. Really? Wow. He got you back on the train. What was it? Interesting. Why? I'm back on. Why? Well, I mean, if, if I had to point to even just one piece of it, it was, well, first of all, it was, Amy, like you said, it was very measured. He didn't come out swinging, like, you know, in all directions. But he said, like, all the things that me and my fellow, you know, conservative friends all talk about in regards to the DOJ and the FBI. I, when I heard that, my ears perked up and I was like, yes. And I think he's, he's probably truly the only one that could go in there at this point and, you know, in 2024, I know there's a lot of time still, but they could go in there and just start, you know, settling the issues that they have within those departments. He has the, the uh, cojones All right. to follow through with that. Thanks for the call. And Tina. he did mention that. I mean, he said he's a victim of the FBI, Christopher Steele raid. Christopher Steele. Christopher Steele dossier. dossier yeah. Excuse me. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's morning answer on AM560, The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy were talking about uh, Trump's announcement. Announcing his third installment in uh, his trilogy. Political odyssey, but... The question is, has too much scar tissue been built up between Trump and the GOP primary electorate to salvage his candidacy? Can he convince, said GOP voters, his politics, not his policies, his politics can win a general election? 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 646-360-DA, turnkey.pro text line. We're also looking for trilogies that hold up over right. three installments. Maybe Lord of the Rings. Oh. Maybe Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're getting the nod of approval from Mike. Who's wearing his winter sweater? Today, Hunger Games? No, I don't think Hunger so. Hunger Games? No, no, no. No, but tr- but I think Lord of the Rings. I mean, Mike gave us the uh, the westerns uh, as a uh, offering too. Pretty good, pretty good. And you guys don't like Die Hard three? No, no, it's, it had uh, been spent by three. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, w- one of the uh, issues that got uh, Tina from Joliet back in the fold, we were talking about before Mike Scott's newscast. She was talking about. She was out yesterday. She's back in today, <laughs> and it was specific to this part of Trump's speech last night. None is greater than the weaponization of the justice system, the FBI, and the DOJ. We must conduct a top-to-bottom overhaul to clean out the festering rot and corruption of Washington D.C. We will dismantle the deep state and restore government by the people. Mm, and clean out uh, D.C.'s Augean stables. Drain the swamp, as it were. Because he knows, because he's a victim. I, I have never heard him use the word victim. And I'm a victim, I will tell you. I'm is. a victim. Think of it. Uh, the FBI offered $1 million to Christopher Steele, who yep. wrote the fake dossier. If he will lie and say that the fake dossier was true, and he refused to do it, so it had to be really fake. And then they hired somebody, Demchenko, for $200,000 a year to focus on Trump and to get Trump. And And then he talked about the raid on this beautiful place, Mar-a-Lago, and they went into Barron's room and Melania's closet. And to get Trump, to talk about Trump, he went, went third person there. Um, there was a good riff towards the end of the speech on uh, what we we are up against. He made it uh, we, not I, which is always better. And uh, his confidence that we will win against what we're up against. We will be resisted by the combined forces of the establishment, the media, the special interests, the globalists, the Marxist radicals, the woke corporations the weaponized power of the federal government, the colossal political machines, the tidal wave of dark money, and the most dangerous domestic censorship system ever created by man or woman, the most dangerous system we've ever had. We will be attacked. We will be slandered. We will be persecuted just as I have been. I mean, I have been, but many people in this room have been. But we will not be intimidated. We will persevere. We will stand tall in the storm. We will march forward into the torrent. And we, in the end, will win. Our country will win. We will win. Mm. I mean, you know, again, if that was more consistently Trump's offering, he would be in a much better place politically. It just hasn't been. But he does. I mean, it's smart of him to remind people what we are up against, the enemies of a free people, philosophically and you know the the human forms they take, and remind people that he is willing to put in the fight as he's demonstrated, so you know 
he's got the fight in him, that he'll take on all of these institutions and the people who control them that have gamed the system against people who play by the rules in this country. That's was his value proposition in 2016. It's just a sort of updated restatement of it, isn't it? Good moment. Good riff. Is it enough? It Maybe if he can consistently offer that over the next several months, he can start to build back political capital he's lost. I don't know. I don't know. What say you, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, Bill and Glen Ellen. Yeah, I voted for Trump both times, but I, if DeSantis runs, I'm leaning DeSantis because Trump is the guy to take the fight, but there's just, uh, as I've heard, a hard feeling for Trump where people will not vote for him, won't even look at him because of his personality. And I think DeSantis is Trump 2.0. He has all of Trump's strengths without those annoying mistakes that just make it impossible to get people who are blind and dumb and will vote against them simply because, well, it's Trump, I'm voting against them. You know, it's just, it's infuriating because they're going to do the same thing to DeSantis that they did to Trump, and they're going to do it a hundred times harder because Trump is going to, uh, DeSantis is going to be even harder to beat than Trump. Because just the way he has responded to Trump shows how much better at it than Trump he is. Yeah, thanks for the call, Bill. I mean, are they going to go after DeSantis like they did Trump? I don't think so. What, what are you talking about? A, a big government, compassionate conservative, which is a redundancy, but it speaks to what he thought about conservatism, like George W. Bush was Hitler to them. Every Republican is Hitler. And particularly if you're at the top of the ticket and you're standing between them and the White House? Are you kidding? What have they said about DeSantis as his profile has increased as governor of Florida. What did they say during COVID? He's well, killing, yeah, right. he's he's killing, killing people. people. And one of his challengers did call him Hitler. Remember that? Yeah, the ag commissioner who lost in the primary yeah. to Charlie Crist. Are they going to go after DeSantis in the same way? Will it be the same I'm just, I don't name think calling? DeSantis has as much baggage as maybe Trump has had well, over the years. But well, Trump's a well, bombastic sure. New York businessman who's been married three times and has five kids with three different women. So well, they went after him, yes. I don't think the family had much to do with it. I think, you know, tr- how Trump, I mean, to Bill and Glennell's point, how Trump handles criticism. Now, compare that to, you know, because they're, they're trying to pur- uh, purport that DeSantis has thin skin, too. He's got a glass chin and he's going to lose his composure. Hmm. I don't know. He was asked about uh, Trump's shots at him. And listen to how DeSantis handled it yesterday. Awesome. Well, you know, one of the things I've learned, like learned in this job, is um, uh, when you're do when you're leading, when you're getting getting things done, yeah, you take incoming fire. That's just the nature of it. Uh, I roll out of bed in the morning. I've got corporate media outlets that have a spasm just the fact that I'm getting up in the morning, and it's constantly attacking. And this is just what's happened. I don't think any governor got attacked more, particularly by corporate media, than me over my four-year term. And yet, I think what you, what you learn is all that's just noise. And really what matters is, are you leading? Are you getting in front of issues? Uh, are you delivering results for people? And are you standing up for folks? And if you do that, then none of that stuff matters. And, and that's what we've done. We focused on results and leadership. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, 
Uh, I would just uh, tell people to go check out the scoreboard from last Tuesday night. Uh, the fact of the matter is... Yeah, the fact of the matter is we um, – it, it was the, the, the greatest uh, Republican victory in the history of the state of Florida. He's asked about Trump taking shots at him, and he turns it and he makes it about the media, not about Trump. That's what That's you good. do. Yep. Is this somebody that you think is going to waste his time punching down uh, on intellectual pipsqueaks pimp like uh, Rosie O'Donnell? Or some other, you know, C-list celebrity on Twitter. Uh, this is somebody who seems to have his eye on the prize. And he has a record to point to as well, just as Trump does a record of success. Yeah. I don't know. I think um, I think that approach that you heard from DeSantis has more appeal than what we've seen from Trump up until last night recently. And this is why you're hearing from people who, as you just heard from Bill and Glenn Ellen, I voted for Trump twice. I appreciate what he did. But it's a reminder. It's a reminder. One of the things I always say, politicians, means to policy ends, temporary representatives. Don't fall in love with them. They'll only break your heart. Make the best choice in the moment. To advance your policy interests. And that's what Ron DeSantis did yesterday. Besides a comment when asked about, you know, Trump announcing for president, he went on and took advantage of the platform. Uh, That Biden's policies are overwhelmingly unpopular. People think the country's going in the wrong direction. When that happens, they almost always want to choose to correct that by going. Yet in a lot of these states, you know, they didn't do that. Well, the one place I think that people can look to is the blueprint is Florida. Uh, Because what have we done? I mean, you know, we came in at a very close election. In fact, before I became governor, 2010, 2012, 2014, 2016, 2018, all the major races, governor, presidential, were one point or less uh, for for that time. So in my race was less than a point in, in 2018. And so we came in to a very, very large, diverse swing state, and we led. And, he, and they talked about how he handled COVID, and he stood up to Dr. Fauci where others would not. Yeah, and that was a seminal moment. You say, well, Florida's gotten a lot more red because of the migration to Florida. Right. Well, right. why are people migrating to Florida? But DeSantis— and, In part because DeSantis stood up during COVID, right. in part because that migration has been happening for a while as you've gone from Jeb Bush, you know, Charlie Chris briefly, to Rick Scott to now DeSantis— the state's expanding its school choice program, making it increasingly more attractive to live there financially, to invest there, locate a business there, grow a business there. And, you know, that builds up over time, just as Illinois has built up in the wrong direction. Right. But DeSantis won women. <clears throat> he won Miami-Dade County, which is 70 percent Latino. Yeah. Well, that's so, a big deal so, by 11 so, so did Jeb Bush. So, you know, part of this is let's 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 not get hysterical here, too. Part of this is absolutely Charlie Crist, who's about as tired and weak a candidate as the Democrats would have nominated. You know, Marco Rubio won against a much more compelling candidate, Val Demings, by 15 points, 14, 15 points, too. So don't forget that. Florida has changed, and DeSantis gets credit for that, just as 
you know, Mike Pence and Eric Hol- Holcomb get credit for building upon what Mitch Daniels started in Indiana. Don't look at things in isolation. Look at them on a continuum. Because that's how you understand direction when you're talking about uh, things that move slowly. You know, it takes a while to go from down a couple hundred thousand in voter registrations to up several hundred thousand, which is where Republicans were a few years ago to where they are today. But those wheels have been turning for two decades in Florida. Again, just as the wheels have been turning in the opposite direction for decades in Illinois. And then you find yourself in, in, a, in a particular place, good or bad, and you say, oh, well, it's just the responsibility and, uh, or the, um, uh, just on the basis of who's there right now. Well, no, look back and see what you've been doing, what path you've been on. That's how you know how and why you got to the place you're standing at currently. Phil in Maryville, Indiana. Hey, guys. Uh, I just like to say I'm getting sick and tired of all these Republicans talking about they're not voting for Trump because of his comments. They, they seem to forget that Biden said some of uh, the most blatant racist things out there, and his base still voted for him. They didn't care what he said. Well, I know, but the, but the, the point, Phil, here is not to that but you know biden is not the standard the point here is to say it can i mean and this is what i think you're hearing from people who are erstwhile trump supporters can trump win a general election and if i don't think he can then we have to make a change this is a pragmatic discussion that's being had here there's not a lot of trump supporters saying he didn't do a good job as president they're saying he can't win in 2024 we need to make a change and you have Ron DeSantis as somebody who essentially has a very similar policy agenda, but represents a turning of the page and perhaps a more polished version of what Trump was and certainly has become. JP, Northwest Indiana. Hey, guys, good morning. So talking about trilogies, I used to live in Philly for a little bit when my dad retired out of the Army. Rocky I'm going to go three. with Rock. Yeah, yeah. yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. All right. I'll 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 give that one to you. All right. Go ahead. Is that, uh, uh, is that so you just want, oh, okay, Eric, go ahead. All right. So listen, uh I voted for Trump twice. I'm a police officer. I'm a military veteran, served in Iraq, from a military family as I said. I got into a text discussion with two fellow friends who are also police officers. Um two of us unanimously agree. You know, and all three of us voted for Trump twice. He's just got too much baggage. He's not going to win. DeSantis is Trump, but with all the upside, none of the downside. And I'm going to tell you, as a, as a young guy in my 40, early 40s raising a family, I identify a lot more with DeSantis, you know, having been a military veteran himself. I, you know, he, he makes good decisions. I'm telling you, if it goes to a primary and Indiana is actually in play for that because we vote very late for the primary. It's the Santa's over Trump, without a doubt. Thanks for the call, Jay. But, you know, that's another issue, too, and the, the Trump-DeSantis matchup, potentially, is, the, you know, the generational one. There's a, people that are sort of tired of septuagenarian and octogenarian yeah. leaders of the nation. And so DeSantis, a 45-year-old DeSantis going up against an ostensibly an 81, 82-year-old Joe Biden, if he really does run again, or some other elder statesman. Um, you know, and even though Trump has seemed seemed very sharp last night and has the vigor to do this, it would appear he's still old. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, here's trilogy. Back to the future, Dan. Back Please to the consider. future. Back to the future. <laughs> really? Is that a, back, did that hold up through the third one? No, the third one was awful. No. Verlon, Southside. Well, when you want to talk about tri- trilogies, I'm going to say Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. It was better than 1 and 2. All right. And, I, didn't, um, I didn't know you were such and, a horror fan there, Freddy Krueger oh, boy. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, Verlon. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. But I'm a, but I want to say, listen. I heard one of the callers a, a while back. There's no do, there's no Donald Trump 2.0. DeSantis is DeSantis, and Trump is Trump. And I'm gonna dance with the man who brought me there, and I'm gonna wear a bright red dress for Donald Trump. He's my guy, and I'm going down with. Him. All right, Verlon. All right. Please, I hope that red dress is metaphorical. Please, he's all in. Please let that. No, be no, he's all in. Philip Blue Island. Well, Verlon will be going down. Um, just All like right. Trump has been going down for the last, what, after he lost the presidency and then he lost the House and, and the Senate, and then this midterm he lost pretty much everything. And that's why I kind of feel bad for Herschel Walker right now because he just endorsed Herschel Walker. So I think Herschel Walker, if Herschel Walker goes down, I think um, 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 that Trump should just really just, I mean, the, 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 the writing's on the wall. And uh, my trilogy would probably be The Godfather. Yeah, but, but mm. three, you know, three was the problem there. With the, the, that didn't hold up. Three was I'll sort let of you a, know after three, I see one. Three was a dud. Oh, right. Oh, no. So I haven't seen The Godfather. Oh, my gosh. You call yourself an American. <laughs> it's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer. On AM 560, The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Service we're talking about last hour and Trump's uh, announcement of the third installment in his trilogy last night. He made made the offering that uh, his candidacy will be the means to de-weaponizing the FBI and unearthing the deep state. And uh, ironically, FBI Director Christopher Wray was testifying before a House committee Mm -hmm. yesterday in advance of his speech, in advance of President Trump's speech. Love the timing, Dan. A, A New York Republican congressman named Brian Higgins had some questions for Chris Ray about confidential informants on January 6th. And again, this is based on a New York Times story out yesterday 
that the FBI had as many as eight informants inside the Proud Boys in the months around Jan 6, raising questions about how much federal investigators were able to learn from them before and after the rioting took place. So this is New York Times reporting, not that you should take the New York Times at face value, but this is not some something that's being conjured up by you know, Jan 6 election deniers or however the left would characterize people asking legitimate questions. Here's that exchange between Chris Ray. And uh, do we have that exchange between Chris Ray and uh, Does the Brian FBI Higgins? have confidential human sources? Uh, did the FBI have confidential human sources embedded within the January 6th protesters on January 6th of 2021? Well, Congressman, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have to be very careful about what I can say about when Even now, because that's what you told us two years ago. May I finish? Uh, About when we do and do not, and where we have and have not used confidential human sources. Uh, But to the extent that there's a suggestion, for example, that the FBI's confidential human sources or FBI employees in some way instigated or orchestrated January 6th, that's categorically false. Did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters inside the Capitol on January the 6th prior to the doors being opened? Again, I had to be very careful. It should be a no. Can you not tell the American people? No, we did not have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters position inside the Capitol. Gentlemen's time has expired. You should not read anything into my decision uh, not to share information. Director Ray, gentlemen's time has expired. Uh-huh. Because well, oh, we well, want his time to expire. Well, I'll tell you yeah. what. I'm going to go ahead and read something into your refusal to answer the question in a straightforward mas- uh, fashion, Director Ray. I- I'm going to go ahead and do that. The New York Times is reporting it, and you're continuing to stonewall, as the congressman said, two years into this. What we can say that, of course, uh, any confidential informants we would or would use, uh, would or would not use, did or did not use, any confidential informants, if they were used, would never be in the business of instigating anything. Although that seems to be not exactly what at least some people understand happened with respect to the... Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot, not to mention just the corruption within the upper ranks of the FBI generally. All the whistleblowers that have come forth from within the FBI talking to Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson about bad actors and bad acts. Anywhere where politics, partisan politics was at play, they were trying to put their finger on the scales for the left against Trump in particular. So you'll you'll excuse me, Director Ray, if I do read into your refusal to answer questions years and years and years and years into this and everything associated with it. You know, uh, Holman Jenkins, who is hardly beating the drum for a third run for Trump, Sunset for Trump and his foes, he writes in the journal. The U.S. establishment tried to impeach a president for being, it said, flippant and cynical about Ukraine's security interests. Then the same establishment sought to expel Trump for being insufficiently devoted to Ukraine, took power, 
And that's when Putin invaded. Clearly, the Russian leader wasn't making a judgment about Trump, who was out of power. He was making a judgment about Trump's impeachers, about the cynicism and opportunism of their sudden and passing devotion to Ukraine. A great failure has yet to be acknowledged. The failure of our elites to respond in a mature and patriotic way to the outcome of the 2016 election. You don't have to be a Trump fan to see the Democrats, the FBI, and the media deliberately promoted the collusion lie. You don't have to be a Hillary Clinton supporter to see that the FBI's unsanctioned meddling in the race likely cost her the presidency. You don't have to be a Biden buyer to agree Mr. Trump's own lies undermine our institutions. But we reach an understanding with ourselves about such matters mainly through the media, which, in its cowardice and innate lickspittalism, sees only the last of these stories, the Trump story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you'll, uh, I know you'll get never Trumpers, uh, Dismissing this as uh, nothing more than what aboutism, but no, there's an aboutism here. It's about the FBI. It's about a politicized law enforcement agency. And perhaps a politicized, I, I don't think it's really perhaps actually, uh, a politicized intelligence agency called the CIA. That's not what aboutism. That's a legitimate concern, and we're not getting legitimate answers. Addressing those concerns from the people in charge. And that does provide an avenue for Trump in a way that distinguishes him from DeSantis. It does. I'm, I'm not making a, 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 a statement of endorsement for Trump's candidacy here. I'm just saying what the truth is. It provides an avenue to Trump and no one else because no one else has been through it in the way that Trump has. Holman Jenkins. You know, another these are you know, these are establishment center right types. You know, we're talking about the Wall Street Journal columnist and ed board here. Hardly insurrectionists. Election deniers, fascists. They're semi fascists, all the terms the left likes to use, even uh, in the direction of center, center right intellectuals. James Freeman also writing in the journal, the FBI and disinformation. U.S. citizens will not continue to enjoy foundational constitutional liberties if the FBI is permitted to abuse its powers as it did in targeting the 2016 Trump campaign and may have done in assisting the 2020 Biden campaign. A responsible defense of our First Amendment freedoms requires a thorough inquiry to determine to what extent the FBI and other federal agencies lean on social media companies to suppress government-designated disinformation. Government-designated disinformation. And you had this just the other week. Joe Biden off the cuff, somebody should look at Elon Musk. Who's the somebody? DOJ? FBI? FBI. Yeah. We have the Intercept reporting on the collusion, if you will, since it's a word that likes to be that the left likes to bandy about so much. The collusion between the big tech companies and the state in the run up to twenty twenty. And that's what Freeman is referencing. So yeah, you know what? Let's have it with when Kevin McCarthy ostensibly uh, obtains the speaker's gavel. Let's have a Jan 6 committee, as others, including Joel Pollack over at Breitbart, have argued. Don't disband the Jan 6 committee. Establish a legitimate one that is truly bipartisan in nature, that asks all the questions, including that whole segment of questions that this star chamber set up by Nancy Pelosi and former Republicans, Kinzinger and Cheney, won't ask about Everyone's role, including the FBI, 
including the legislative leaders, McConnell and Pelosi, who knew what when? Who was doing what when? Why didn't you call reinforcement in? What uh, do, this uh, g- g- CIs? Yes, no. Ray Epps. What? What is he? A wanted man or a CI or or what? We don't have. They're, they're not even asking the questions, much less getting any story. answers. You know, receiving any answers voluntarily. Of course, there's no interest. There's no interest in, in asking questions or getting answers, and certainly none in providing them. At least as, in terms of what Chris Ray is, what Chris Ray is offering. So yeah, you know, you can understand why uh, Trump still has an avenue here, despite people's frustrations with his pettiness and petulance and immaturity. In so many instances, because there are real, real threats afoot. And when you see after the IRS during Obama, when you see these agencies using the immense, frankly, almost unlimited power, thanks to the lack of oversight and the inability to hold people accountable, the inability even to get like straight answers, much less any uh, punishment for bad actors they get to just you know walk away retire and walk off into the sunset or get a sinecure at georgetown like peter strock or uh be a pundit on msnbc like andy mccabe or that tom tebold who was trying to spike the hunter biden laptop investigation just gets to quietly retire walk away probably get a consulting gig the hell with that people say and they're right to say it and if trump taps into that could be pretty interesting. Uh, Corey Woodlawn, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, good morning, Danny. Good morning, Amy. I've said this before. I think whoever becomes president next, the conservative, needs to move the executive branch completely out of D.C. This culture is rotten. And just, since they want to become a state so bad, let them dissolve themselves back into Maryland. Thanks for my turn. Thanks, Corey. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that that Chappelle uh, monologue on... Uh, Saturday Night Live this weekend, we fully played in uh, a number of parts on Monday. And what was one of the things said in explaining Trump? The FBI? Yeah, we were there first talking about black people. The FBI, how about the FBI and Martin Luther King? Right under J. Edgar Hoover. It was really interesting that, you know, these grievances, I mean, Chappelle's essential point was a lot of the grievances that middle America... Uh, working class people that are largely white have that attracted them to Trump are the same grievances that black people and black families have had over the years against the same institutions legitimately. This is sort of the coming together. And by the way, Jason Riley has a good piece in the journal as well about how, you know, Republicans, again, enjoyed a little bit of an uptick in minority support. It's not happening nearly as fast as I would like, and I think most Republicans would like, but it's happening. I just had that Chappelle, you know, yeah, not, you know, and, and to, to his point, I get it. You know, now some people get it that didn't get it before because they're experiencing it. It's unfortunate that people have to experience injustice sometimes to appreciate injustice done to others. But that's what's happened. Ron Carroll Stream. 
Good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the phrase semi-fascist that Biden threw out there, and I'm just wondering, how, how can you actually be part of a fascist? I think either you are or you aren't, so I just I think you wanted to insert the word fascist. So Yeah, thanks, Ron. Chris on 65, I-65. Hey, Chris. Chris. Hey. Sorry, sorry. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay. Trump supporter, but go DeSantis on the next round. And as far as trilogies go, John Wick. Uh, I can't give you the third one. The third one was like car- it was like a video game. You yeah, like the th- you like the third John Wick? I like them all. Yeah. I, no. Did you have you seen the John Wick movies? And we're talking to somebody who hasn't seen Godfather. Of course, you haven't seen John Wick. Yeah. Lucky see. I saw Spaceballs. Uh, I love Spaceballs. No, John Wick. I, I, I'm sure there are John Wick fans out there, too, that would agree with me. The first two, uh, okay. The third one, I mean, literally, it was like a video game. It was cartoonish. It was ridiculous. All right, then it's off the list. All right. Tom, Blue Island. Hey, Dan and Amy, I think it's a great day. I think we're going to end up having a lot of discussion uh, that's going to end up being a little moot because my hope is that DeSantis will come into the fold and he will be uh, elected president in 2028. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. My trilogy, I know you guys did this a little extemporaneously, but I can't see how it's anything other than Ron DeSantis as Harrison Ford and Donald Trump as Sean Connery in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade because this is a crusade. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for the call. I don't think I don't think Indiana Jones held up by the way till three, and it's certainly not going to hold hold up in the future. Now they want to make Indiana Jones a chick. Oh no, no, no! Everybody's a chick now. James Bond has to be a chick. Indiana Jones is a chick. It's not going to be effective. Just leave it alone. It's going to be about as effective as that all female cast of Ghostbusters. <laughs> It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. As you heard in Mike Scott's newscast, uh, the Illinois Republican Party, (laughs) these super, super minorities in the House and the Senate have uh, new legislative leaders. Okay. Unless you're in their district, you probably never heard of them. But uh, John Curran uh, from, uh, you know, like Downers Grove way um, as the Senate leader, Senate super minority leader. And Tony McCombie from Western Illinois, Savannah, as the House Republican leader, super minority, super, 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 super minority super. leader, <laughs> smallest caucus, <laughs> smallest, <laughs> smallest caucus since, I think maybe in state, state history, the smallest legislative caucus in state history. And I in think, Florida, I think so. it's the exact opposite. Super majorities wow. in Florida. Um, I note um, Susanna Mendoza. Oh. She's not getting any taller. She is off- Dick Biggers Jr. with her? <laughs> she offered him a job. Uh, Dick Bigger? Dick Bigger. Yeah. Dick Bigger Jr. Oh, it made it all the way to late night TV, her Dick Bigger Jr. Or the endorsement. The, the endorsement, Dick Bigger, right. Downstate that was on, Farmer. Yeah. 
Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimball, whatever. And maybe he'll uh, maybe he'll take a job in the comptroller's office. Yeah. Uh, I offer my heartiest congratulations to Tony McCombie on her historic achievement in becoming the first woman chose to lead a caucus in the Illinois House. <laughs> I am woman. And Hear she, me roar. And she goes on to uh, congratulate McCombie for assisting her, Susanna Mendoza, in marshalling the votes to override Governor uh, uh, Governor Ronner veto of her "quote unquote" debt transparency legislation in 2017. Well, there's a there's a real feather in your cap. Uh, yeah, the um, Illinois House, and we'll see about the Illinois Senate, the leadership, and I use that term very loosely. Continues to be impervious to learning. They learn nothing. They learn nothing, even as their caucus shrinks and shrinks, the incredibly shrinking caucus. They learn nothing. Again, to repeat, eight times since World War II has a legislative caucus had fewer than 40% of the caucus, uh, of the overall chamber, members in the overall chamber. Eight times, fewer than 40%. Five of those eight times in the last nine years under Jim Durkin. And what's the response from House Republicans, Illinois State House Republicans, when Jim Durkin finally goes away? Jim Jim Durkin 2.0. What was the response when Tom Cross went away before Jim Durkin? Tom Cross 2.0. So they, there's eight out of 60 legislators who have some portion of suburban cook in the collars. Only 15% are Republicans. Eight out of 60. So that's going to get smaller. It's going to go. It will get smaller uh, because they just refuse to do anything that resembles taking an interest in winning elections. They will continue by the choice they made to be a bunch of individuals, smaller and smaller group looking to protect their little piece of turf, and they won't be able to, particularly in the suburbs, just as we've seen the attrition over the last two decades. They won't be able to, so the the number of suburban legislators, Republican legislators, will shrink. But that's not important to them. What's important to them is the next thing. What's important to Jim Durkin is continuing to self-deal. You know, he's a municipal lawyer and a legislator. Well, you know, now he's gone from the General Assembly, he wants to be able to flip and get deals done in the General Assembly. Well, to do that, you need to be friendly with Democrats, just like Tony McCombie is, as you hear from Susanna Mendoza, your Democrat comptroller. Chicago Democrat comptroller, I should add. So... She's not getting any taller. So again, a little lady, as Dick Bigger calls her. (laughs) Little lady. Little, like... Can we get the Dick Bakers, Junior? Uh, so, <laughs> so fun. So, I, I, you know, I just um, just want to update you. Not that people take a particular interest in the General Assembly, nor should they, because the Republican Party doesn't take a particular interest in the General Assembly. Haven't in a while. There will be no money except institutional money. They'll get pennies on the dollars from the public sector unions and the other rail creatures in Springfield that the Democrats get. They'll run the same sort of 
staid campaigns with the warmed over talking points from a bygone era about I'm a fiscal conservative, fund our schools, lower taxes, blah, blah, blah. And the handful of suburban Republican legislators left will win all maybe to I, I don't I don't know who actually has a safe suburban seat except for Tim Ozinga in Mokina. I don't think I, I don't I, the other the other seven. I don't think anybody has a safe suburban seat. Uh, nor should they. Uh, by the way, John Curran, that Senate seat in DuPage County, when he's up in four years, that's going to go too. So if these people, no hope. if these, well, not if if these if if you don't change what you're doing, then why would you expect things to improve? I mean, okay, you do what you're going to keep do- you 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 do what you've been doing and then we'll do what we've been doing and then we'll see the same result. That's sort of 1 plus 1 equals 2. So that's what's going to happen. Barring uh something that would be unexpected given what we know about those caucuses and the people in charge. So it has to go uh, how much worse does it have to get? When I that question is not just a question for Illinois writ large. It's a question for the Illinois Republican Party. And the answer is the answer you got yesterday, worse. Has to get worse. Caucuses aren't small enough. The beatings haven't been severe enough. Okay. No problem. And I, I you know, and, and I'm happy, I'm happy to watch that from the sidelines. Happy to watch that from the sidelines so they can find other boogeymen to blame for what doesn't occur under their actual leadership. It's interesting. In D.C. right now, there's a challenge to McConnell. There was a modest challenge to McCarthy. Yeah, but, but, but people are talking about the leadership of the parties and whether or not there needs to be leadership changes and what the leadership needs to do. Here, the quote-unquote leadership of the party looks for people who aren't in leadership who aren't it, who aren't part of the Republican party power structure to blame for what they don't do to cover their cowardice to cover all the times that they threw in with democrats to advance terrible public policy to ostensibly save themselves well how's that working as a path to salvation politically I think the numbers tell the tale, don't they? And then overnight while you were sleeping, this historic win for organized labor, the fundamental rights for workers to unionize, that that passed. Uh, in DuPage County. Oh, yeah. What's going on there? DuPage County, we got a, a counting issue. Process issue. DuPage County. You know, Not that that rock-ribbed Republican county. Yeah, that's long gone, too. Has anybody noticed? And by the way, this was brought, I know because I know the case, this was brought to the state party. They did nothing. But fortunately, Deanne Mazaki, who's a state rep from Elmhurst, uh, continued to shop this problem, and other people got involved to help. Not the party, though. DuPage County judge has ordered DuPage County clerk Jean Kazmarek to change the way her office counts mail and ballots, issuing a TRO requiring DuPage County election judges to exclusively rely on voter registration records on file when verifying signatures on the ballot 
are from the actual voter. DuPage County Judge James Oral, the election code does not permit the use of a signature from a mail-in ballot application to validate a mail-in ballot signature. Of course not. As he said, that would be an obvious way to commit fraud, which is why that's not the requirement. The requirement for signature match is signature match on the mail-in ballot with the actual voter registration card. Because I can fill in the application and then I fill in the ballot. And I'm not the person. I fill in the ballot, fill in the application on behalf of somebody else, and then I sign it. Well, of course the signature is going to match because I sent in the application. Now I'm filling out the ballot. Use of the vote-by-mail ballot application to qualify signatures on the vote-by-mail ballot itself would be an obvious way to commit ballot fraud. Quote, DuPage County Judge James Oral. And they're protesting this over at DuPage County. And now the question becomes, as they've inappropriately counted all these ballots by a process that is violative of their own rules. What do you do? Well, how do you undo that count? You go back and recount and verify it the right way this time? Shouldn't they? Because uh, Mazaki, who's a you know Republican state rep, she's down like 250 votes to her Democrat opponent. So I don't know. Anybody care about that? The Republican Party doesn't. You know, the official Republican Party doesn't seem to. Dan Mazaki does. Some other people do got involved. You just want to point to something and say it's all because of this, and then somebody is going to step in and do all the work for you. Somehow, some way, by kismet, it's all going to turn around. It's not just J.B. Pritzker and the Democrats in this state that tell beautiful lies. This is like procrastinating on your term paper and hoping somebody breaks into your dorm to do it for you. That's the approach the Republican Party takes to get their, getting their work done in this state. When it comes to anything and everything, candidate recruitment, message development, get out the vote, ballot integrity, There's a reason why things are the way they are. Well, by the way, I was interested in some comments from Ken Griffin. You know, he's the CEO of Citadel. Right, who's moved. Yeah, moved to Miami. He uh, was uh, in a little uh, interview session with uh, the Miami mayor, Francis Suarez, My children went to a phenomenal school in Chicago, but their indoctrination in the woke ideology was crushing. This was a talk hosted by the Economic Club down in Miami. They came home very confused about whether or not the United States was a good country. Wow. And they came home confused about what they could or couldn't say to a student who was Asian or otherwise of color. My son was reprimanded for telling an Asian student he was good at math because that's stereotyping. The person could just be good at math, but okay. Compliments aren't allowed. No compliments. Uh, Griffin went on, it's unbelievable to see how that destroys the minds of children who are otherwise innocent and good and don't think about these kinds of things. Well, where did his kids go? Francis Parker? Lennon? No, where they... I, I don't know where they went. They, 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 but it doesn't really matter. It was a school in Illinois, private school. Uh, uh, and for all of those, um, you know, urban sophisticates, uh, oh, the great schools here, Florida... Florida, well, they don't, don't their know. public schools are awful. They're, well, exactly, you know, a bunch of hillbillies wearing jorts and uh, 
you know, eating dirt. Yeah, right. Ken Griffin, does he fit that description? I don't think so. The Sunshine State has great schools, a great environment, and your streets are safe and clean, he said. Watching them, his kids, transform here in school in Miami is perhaps the greatest gift Miami has given my family. <laughs> that's so, so You could have all the money in the world, but that comment right there, that's what a good state under good leadership looks like. Ken Griffin just wasn't sophisticated enough to stay here, right? The $30 billion, whatever he's worth, $30 billion hedge fund dude. No, he doesn't get it. He doesn't he doesn't get what the intelligentsia in Illinois and Chicago understand, right? Yeah. What a joke. Absolute joke. Disgrace. Frank Arlington Heights. You know, Dan, um, when you were reading that uh, thing about the DuPage County uh, ballot issue there, these signatures, I thought you were going to tell me that the litigants in that case didn't have standing and they and that they couldn't uh, issue a ruling on it. That's what I was kind of figuring. Well, that's what that they that's what that's, that's actually what the uh, DuPage County Clerk's office through their representation Pat Bond argued, which is an asinine argument. That you don't have standing because the election hasn't been completed yet. We're stopping a fraudulent count of the election. What are you talking about? If you're not following your own process, then of course it requires uh, an immediate stop to uh, a process that is violative of the rules set forth, and that's exactly what the DuPage County judge ruled. Well, thankfully. And then one other point on the um, the super, super duper minority leaders. Why is our party even electing leaders? It'd be better off to go with just legislative guerrilla warfare. Let them all just go out there and do whatever they want themselves. Results might be better. Yeah, you right. Try that for two years. Thanks. Oh no, but no, we want to work. We're going to work constructively with the Democrats. You know what that means? Yeah, we'll put we'll put votes. Cave we'll put the, votes on a tax increase. Yeah. Sure, no problem. Yeah, we'll, we'll do whatever we'll, you say as well, long as we're friends and you make nice comments about me. Yeah, that's great. Hey, can can you tell that union to lay off me when election time comes if I vote this way? Yeah, so they don't run a candidate against me. Thanks. Good luck, yeah. Gary Naperville. <laughs> Yeah, again, so for the adding uh, at the township election two years ago in DuPage County, uh, they decided to, that they couldn't beat the Democrats, so they wanted no Republicans. So this is a Republican organization. We uh, I ran with uh, six people, but they violated election law by eliminating the caucus and having a Zoom meeting. Went to court, but Clusky put us on the ballot. So we had Republicans against Democrats. The Republican Party went into court and sued at the appellate and Supreme Court to make sure the Republicans were taken off the ballot and uh, on a similar stupid like issue, like we didn't have standing or something. But uh, they actually, and I, I talked to Zim, Jim Zay, head of the party, and he's like, oh, why are you guys always fighting? So he couldn't step up and say, hey, we've got Republicans on the ballot. They let the suit go on. They spent 25 grand getting rid of uh, Republicans so the Democrats didn't have any opposition in April Township at the caucus. Thanks for the call, Gary. Yeah, why, you, why always fighting? Just stop fighting. Right, just r- lay over. Ro- just, I mean, roll over. Excuse me, lay, right. just, yeah, you lay over just, when you roll over. Just roll over and play dead. Right. Okay. That's what we've been doing. Sure. Why not? This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, 
The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy in President Trump's announcement. He will run again for the presidency last night at Mar-a-Lago. He started out uh, with a summary of where things were at the end of his term. The world was at peace. America was prospering. And our country was on track for an amazing future because I made big promises to the American people. And unlike other presidents, I kept my promises. I kept them. Well, let's talk about the world was at peace point that he made, uh, talking about uh, getting America out of foreign entanglements, not being so quick to... Uh, dispatch troops the world over. And also um, essentially articulating an updated version of peace through strength. That's literally the phrase he used during his remarks last night, the need for peace through strength, talking at some length about rebuilding the military. He also talked specifically about the need for updating our missile defense system in his speech last night. Well, I mean, he spoke for more than an hour, so he had plenty of time to cover a lot of topics and get into some detail, which he did, uh, is what he had to say, particularly prospectively, about what needs to happen to advance our national security interests, including, importantly, border security. Is that the right path, regardless of whether Trump is the nominee or not, whether Trump is the next president or not? To help us with that question, we're pleased to be joined by William Inboden, Executive Director of the Center for National Security and Associate Professor of Public Policy and History at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. He's got a new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink. Professor Inboden, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Dan. Thanks so much. So what did you have to uh, how did you react to some of what President Trump had to say about these national security concerns and our uh, geopolitical allies and enemies? Well, he's certainly correct that we're in a, a difficult and dangerous and perilous moment, and it wouldn't surprise me at all that uh, President Trump would uh, invoke some themes from Reagan, such as peace through strength and such as missile defense, as you as you as you mentioned. Um, because, you know, most uh, most Republicans, myself included, look back to President Reagan as the last, you know, truly successful two-term Republican president that we had. And I, I worked in the National Security Council for President George W. Bush, and have great respect and a fondness for him, and uh, certainly think he got a lot of things right, too. But when the Bush administration had some significant mistakes, um, whereas uh, I think the Reagan record stands up very well uh, to, to the test of time, where he was able to bring the Cold War to a, a peaceful end on victorious terms for the United States, and it was a remarkable achievement. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that many of us would look back with fondness and appreciation on that time, and that's why I'd, I decided to write a book about it. Well, and and so uh, since we have, uh, um, you know, a KGB, an ex-KGB dictator in Russia, you're dealing with an old old line Soviet, uh, just like Reagan had to deal with old line Soviets. Uh, what is the proper way to deter? Because it is worth noting, as many have noted, that it wasn't under Trump that Putin d- decided to launch this full scale invasion of Ukraine. So what are we not understanding about what it takes to deter Russia in the 21st century? 
Yeah, I think uh, we've had some, you know, obviously um, catastrophic failures of deterrence towards Russia over the last last several years, and we're we're dealing with that now. And frankly, we've also had some failures of deterring communist China too. And so I think there's lessons from Reagan and how he dealt with the communist Soviet Union, both for and how we're try how we need to counter Putin's aggression now from Russia, but also how we now need to counter Xi Jinping's aggression and threat from from uh, from communist China. And in both cases, uh, Putin uh, made the calculation that um, he would be able to invade Ukraine without much of a substantial American response because he'd been able to get away with you know, invading Georgia in 2008 and with intervening in Syria in 2015 and then annexing Crimea in 2014. You know, across multiple presidencies, he'd been able to, to get away with this, with this aggression. And so uh, he, he decided he could, he could do it again. Uh, whereas the, certainly when President Reagan was facing the, the Soviets, uh, their last invasion was of, Jimmy, uh, of Afghanistan under Jimmy Carter in 1979, which again showed Carter's weakness. And uh, Reagan instead imposed punishing costs on the Soviets uh, in Afghanistan and, and elsewhere until they eventually had to, had to sue for peace. Well, that said, what do you think President Biden should do right now to try and create peace between Putin and, and Zelensky in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, before, look, we all want to see uh, peace peace there. We all want to see peace restored, certainly seeing the horrible suffering of the Ukrainian people. But it's got to be peace on unfavorable terms. Uh, it can't be, you know, an, an, appe- an appeasement peace that allows Putin to consolidate everything that he's got. Putin is on his... Um, on his, on his heels right now. I mean, he's suffered catastrophic losses. What, you know, something about a hundred thousand uh, Russian troops have either have been either uh, dead or, or uh, removed from the battlefield because of injuries. So, I think now is the time to uh, uh, reinforce our support for the Ukrainians. Uh, there's, you know, they, they need more more jets. They need better missile defense. They need uh, more supplies of advanced advanced artillery. Um, because as things are, as there's less mobility on the battlefield with winter winter approaching, uh, there's a real opportunity for the Ukrainians to press their advantage and push the Russians back further. And then once I think Putin is feeling, uh, you know, no other way out, seeing no uh, battlefield victories possible, then he'll be willing to, to talk about peace. And so peace through strength includes negotiating a peaceful outcome based on your strength, based on your favorable hand. Uh, how did you react to the first face-to-face between uh, President Biden and President Xi this week? Uh, a lot of conciliatory language from President Biden. They were both just ecstatic to be able to meet face-to-face. It was so lovely. And uh, and this gave uh, President Xi the occasion to, you know, just do what uh, communists will do, which is offer disingenuous propaganda. So was that helpful? I mean, I, I recall President Reagan speaking with moral clarity about the Soviet Union, the evil empire. I don't see such moral clarity when it comes to uh, a Chinese regime that's operating concentration camps and all sorts of other other horrific things they do. Yes, uh, I, I I share those concerns. I my um, I'm not opposed to President Biden meeting with President Xi per se. I mean, President Reagan certainly had some very successful summit meetings with the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. But the important thing to understand from the Reagan record, which I think applies to our current challenge with China, is President Reagan didn't sit down to negotiate with Gorbachev until President Reagan had first. Um, spoken with moral clarity about the the evil empire uh about you know communism ending up on the on the ash heap of history and had strengthened america's hand by restoring our economic strength by restoring our military strength um 
and this, you know, his peace through strength, vision, and mantra included the hope of negotiations, the hope of diplomacy, but only when you are negotiating from a position of strength. And by the time Reagan started meeting with Gorbachev, uh, it's when Gorbachev recognized that America was winning the Cold War, the Soviet Union was losing, and Gorbachev was just looking for, for a way out. Um, and I don't think we're there with China right now. Rather, I think Xi Jinping feels like he has the upper hand over the United States right now, and he's certainly feeling emboldened um, and has not felt uh, very very deterred by President Biden. So I'm, I'm not opposed to the meeting per se with Xi. I just wish we would do it with a much stronger hand. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, part of this is, as you look around uh, the West in terms of the, the the heads of state, boy, you see a lot of soy boys. Uh, you don't see anybody that at least inspires me. I don't know. I don't know if you're Trudeau. inspired by Trudeau or <laughs> Macron or, or <laughs> I mean, uh, or Biden, for that matter. Uh, I mean, is that, are, are we Sunik now, the UK PM, and, um, and, and the several before him? I, it doesn't seem to me we've had um, uh, statesmen or uh, heads of state that that understand the point you're making dealing with uh, enemies of a free people from a strong hand position. It doesn't seem like we've had those in the West for for a bit. You're you're exactly right, and that's where it's a you know unfortunate contrast with the the Reagan era, where uh, Reagan, of course, was you know a tremendous leader. I you know think he's the greatest American president of the of the last century, but he benefited from having like-minded, strong leaders among allies. You know, Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady in uh, in uh, in the, the UK, Brian Mulroney in in Canada. You know, much better than Trudeau. And Mulroney actually defeated Trudeau's father. Um, right. Uh, Helmut Kohl in, in in West Germany, Prime Minister Nakasaki. Sony in, in Japan. All these leaders committed to free markets, uh, to, committed to uh, the free world, to the values of the West, and to a strong anti-Soviet, anti-communist stance. Uh, even we can put Pope John Paul II in there as well, who was you know, very much a part of this uh, free world coalition, you know, much less than, say, Pope, Pope Francis today. Um, I will give Reagan some credit there. Uh, he came into office before most of those other leaders. Uh, Margaret Thatcher had preceded him, but rather, once Reagan was in office, and uh, Europe European and Japanese public saw Reagan restoring the American economy and restoring American strength. A lot of them thought, hey, we'd like our version of those policies. And that helped inspire the elections of some of these other uh, conservative, visionary, strong leaders that I, that, that I mentioned, too. So, uh, so there can be a positive ripple effect of good leadership. Unfortunately, we're living, I think, in a moment of you know, negative ripple effect of, of bad leadership on, on both sides of the Atlantic. And was one of those, well, was one of those strong leaders Queen Elizabeth? So yes, I would certainly put her up there too. There's a wonderful photo in my in my book of uh, President Reagan riding horses with her at Windsor Castle, and um, and it's just it's a it's a very vivid picture I think of the the strength and strong ties uh, between the U.S. and the U.K. and and the Western and the Western alliance. So, so you know, I mean, maybe uh, Fried Zakaria wasn't wrong when he wrote that book a few years ago, Rise of the Rest, and talking about the decline of the West, but not for the reasons that he identified. Uh, so he missed the he missed the basis, but he's going to get the outcome right. Maybe what you're seeing in terms of the weak leadership in the West is a reflection of the decline of the West, the decline in the belief of of the in in the values that made the West strong in the first place, including in America. 
Yeah, I that that may well be part of it. I but I will say here as a, as a student of history and as I got to confess, I'm a Nate optimist. Um, this feels a lot like a 1970s moment. You know, we had pretty weak leadership across the world uh, in the 1970s too. I'm obviously starting with Jimmy Carter here here in the United States, and then uh, you know Helmut Schmidt in in West Germany. You know, a bunch of nameless Japanese prime ministers. Uh, you know, Pierre Trudeau in, in Canada. Right. Um, you know, a series of uh, Labour prime ministers in the UK who couldn't get them out of out of their recession. And you know, the West really felt like it's it was it was losing the fight. Its best days were over. But uh, starting with the election. Of, of Thatcher and Reagan, uh, and then you know the others that we've that we've mentioned. Turnaround certainly what was possible, even when people were feeling like uh, you know we have, we have we have lost. And so uh, I I don't lose I don't lose hope entirely. You know sometimes people can surprise us. You know uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine has certainly been a pleasant surprise uh, as far as you know very inspired leadership showing tremendous courage and standing up uh, standing up for his country and. Um, uh, I think he he just need he needs allies and he needs he needs friends right now. All right, we'll end on that optimistic note. He is William Inboden, executive director of the Center for National Security and associate professor of public policy and history at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the University of Texas at Austin. His book, The Peacemaker: Ronald Reagan, the Cold War, and the World on the Brink. Professor Inboden, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good luck with the book. Thank you, Dan and Amy. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. You mentioned uh, billionaire Citadel CEO Ken Griffin a bit earlier in the program talking about uh, his kids' education experience in Chicago versus Miami, being indoctrinated with... uh, Hate America curricula in Chicago and yeah. saying that uh, the Miami school, he, the transformation of his kids at their school in Miami is the greatest gift Miami's given to his family. Yeah, because in Chicago at a private school, he his son told an Asian classmate that he's good at math and got in trouble for that. My stereotypes. Stere- yes, how mm-hmm. dare you? Well, Griffin was uh, at a uh, Bloomberg confab and he uh, weighed in a bit on the FTX SBF meltdown, Sam Bankman-Fried going from billionaire to, well, perhaps to zero or worse uh, after his exchange collapsed. Listen to the point that Ken Griffin made. Remember, Sam Bankman-Fried, the second biggest donor to the Dem Socialist behind George Soros. Own that, that all of us are worried about. You know, on the balance sheet of FTX is a line called Trump Lose. And Sam was the second biggest donor to Democratic candidates. I'm going to leave it to everybody else to draw their own conclusions about what you're saying here. Okay, Bloomberg boy. Right? Those are, those are really, really ugly facts when you see a fraud of this magnitude having played out. And you find no regulators were there to prevent it. That's a really, really tough story. We could talk for quite a while about FTX. Sadly, we don't have it. Uh huh. So oh, I have to finish with. Yeah. Oh, please. I mean, he's like a mini Bernie Madoff. I remember his FTX commercial for the Super Bowl with Larry David. I mean, they were the, the hip thing coming up, and it's all a fraud. The Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, Canada's third largest fund, lost ninety-five million dollars. Hmm. Well, you know, big teachers union and their pension plan, big leftist, 
Well, what about Democratic Democratic candidates? They got money from them. Shouldn't they return it? I'm sure he'd like it. I'm sure sure he'd love it if they would return it. He's going to need it. But, yeah, he promised, according to Jim Himes, who's a Democrat socialist from Connecticut, SBF promised a billion dollars to Democrats. Well, too bad. Don't have it anymore. Magic magic money billionaire gone. Um, Good piece by Glenn Reynolds, uh, who who runs the Instapundent blog and professor of law at Tennessee, talking about... um, Talking about the crypto king's fall here, Alameda, the the quote unquote research arm where he was funding customer money, was one of those. Uh, this is actually um, uh, him referencing a, a write up in the Main Wire. Uh, Alameda was one of those operations where you're told just to trust that really really smart computer geeks are taking a small amount of money and making it into a big amount of money using computer wizardry you can't understand, but everyone can understand zero, which is the amount. Venture cap giant Sequoia, uh, Sequoia Capital is expecting to get back on its mammoth investment in FTX. Yeah, that's a $215 million write-down for them. Mm-mm-mm. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, Reynolds goes on to point out something else, too. You know, uh, oh, by the way, if you don't like what happened to FTX, maybe you should pay attention to your government because the United States is running the same game. Likewise, the United States government operates largely on reputation. Would you lend money to someone whose debt keep, kept climbing with no apparent limit? As I write this, the U.S. debt clock places the national debt at more than $31 trillion and climbing steadily. There's no plan to bring that amount under control, no re- realistic plan to pay for it over the long term, and no way to fund the federal budget without borrowing. There's one big difference between FTX and the U.S. government. FTX's customers were there voluntarily. U.S. taxpayers, on the other hand, on the other hand have no choice. Ponder that and hang on. More on this. Pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, economist, author of Govzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedom. Perfect segue. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, good morning, guys. And by the way, I just wanted to congratulate you on reelecting uh, Governor Pritzker. He's done an amazing job. I mean, just, no, no I, question. I, I, I could see why he would be overwhelmingly reelected. I mean, he's been an incredible governor. There's no All question. The things that he has done. <laughs> There's no question. Of course, that is, that is, for, for that is the, I'm being facetious. That is the majority <laughs> opinion. That is right in line. You're, you are is, with the majority you know, in Illinois. There's no question he, about that. Now, I'm going to correct one thing you just said uh, when you were reading that, that column from Glenn Reynolds, who's a great economist. I love, I love that guy. But, you know, he said, well, you know, we do this, uh, th- that these policies that are inflicted on us by the government, you know, we don't have any control over. Well, actually, you do. I mean, if you didn't like the way things were going in Illinois, you could have gotten rid of this. Uh, nincompoop and said, you know, you gave him four more years. So, of course, he's going to – what the voter said is keep doing what you're doing. J.B., you're doing an awesome job bankrupting our country, letting the crime run rampant, uh, raising taxes, all these things. Keep doing it. It's wonderful. So I, if I sound a little irritated, I am because that happened in many states. Uh, Michigan uh, reelected uh, this uh, Whitmer who shut down the economy, on and on and on. And so uh, – you know, I don't get it. I don't get why, how it is. Maybe you can explain this, guys. How can it be that 70 to 75 percent of the voters who went in and were asked when they left the polls and the exit polls, uh, how do you feel like the direction the country is going? And 75 percent say uh, we're headed in the wrong direction. And then they go into the voting booth and elect the very people who put the country in the wrong direction. I don't know if it was Roe v. Wade being overturned. I'm not sure what it was, but it's, yeah, it's I mean, mind-boggling. It could be, but, the, but my point is people, I'm tired of people in Illinois complaining 
about how bad things are when you keep reelecting the people who put you in this in this economic vice in the first place. Funny story in other states as well. Funny story though, Steve. It's it's worse than you think because people in Illinois don't think Illinois is on the wrong track. This is the the listen to this is real. Listen to these numbers. This is part. This is the this the part that you know nobody wants to deal with because it speaks to how significant the problem is. Right track, wrong track question in Illinois. Yes, seventy five percent wrong track nationally. In Illinois, forty seven percent said right track, fifty three wrong track. The only half. Only half. The Biden approval rating here is fifty percent. What? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What was the number? Fifty five zero. Fifty fifty. Half of the Illinois voters approve of the job Joe Biden is doing. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, it's worse than you think. Yeah. Like I have to say, uh, and everybody has very different opinions about Donald Trump, and, and uh, certainly public opinion, and, and uh, especially on the right, has turned against Trump because of the crazy things he's been saying. However, I will say this: I did listen to his speech last night, yes. and he did remind. It was actually a very good speech for Trump, and what he basically did is just did a compare and contrast. Remember how it was two years ago, two and three and four years ago, versus how it is today, and he just went through every single statistic. Uh, I thought it was highly effective. Uh, you know, all of these things were headed in the right direction. Now they're headed in the wrong direction. And the one other interesting thing he said, Dan Amy, that I wanted to repeat, because I, I had never thought of this before, but it was a great point. He said, you know, these cli- climate change alarmists say, oh, my God, in 150 or 200 years, the planet is going to be extinct and we're, you know, we're, we're all going to die and the, the water levels are going to rise another six feet. And he said, wait a minute. You know, we've got a situation now. We've got Iran and you've got Russia with nuclear weapons talking about pushing the button and wiping out entire countries. Wouldn't you say that's maybe a more urgent threat than climate change? Yeah. That's right. True. Right. But no, it was it was it was very much like a state of the union speech, right. uh, not like a Trump rally speech. It was better, but the problem is has can the damage he's done been undone? I know. I look, I, I don't know the answer to that, Dan, and I I'm not, you know, I know a lot of the people who support what I do. Uh, you know, I would say 80 percent of them have, tr- have turned against Trump because of his crazy antics and his tweets and going after Glenn Youngkin and going after, uh, you know, uh, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. So I don't approve of that. I'm just saying that I thought. Uh, yeah. And look, he did. Yeah. He did back some really bad candidates. Right, 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 right. Um, so anyway, he uh, but I just thought it was for him. It was one of his better speeches in in uh, in a long time. And it, and it was a reminder Again, I know a lot of people listening to the show probably hate Trump, but you may hate Trump, you may hate his antics, but you got to admit the policies that Trump put forward were quite effective, and especially when you compare them with uh, you know this president that we have. Today. So, are you all in? Are you behind him? Are no, you... no, I'm not. No, I'm not. In fact, I'm right now. I am um, headed to Mar-a-Lago because there is a big. Uh, conference called America's First Policy Institute that I do a lot of work with. And it's a lot of the people who work for Trump in his first term and, uh, you know, really good, smart people. And so we're going to kind of talk about, well, what, you know, where do we head from here? I think most, I would say a lot of the Trump supporters uh, who've been with Trump for, you know, five or six years now are sort of turning towards DeSantis or someone else. So uh, I think it's going to be a tough road to hoe for Trump, but I'll say this, and I wonder what you guys think. Um, Look, put them all on the stage. You know, yep. let, let DeSantis and, and Trump debate each other and put Tim Reynolds up there. We've got a lot of great governors. I like Tim Scott of, of, of uh, uh, South Carolina, one of the best senators. 
and and let's see. You know, eight years ago to this day, do you know who the front runner was for the Republicans? Eight years ago, that would have been uh, twenty six. Well, wait, no, twenty fourteen. Twenty sixteen. Yeah. Well, well six years ago. Six years ago. Yeah, the front runner that would have been um, uh, Scott, Scott Walker. Walker. No, no, Scott Walker. Jeff. Yes, Scott, no, Walker. Scott Walker. Scott Walker. Yes, oh, okay. it was. It was Scott Walker was the was in the polls at that time. Uh, you know, at the very, very, very start of the election season, Scott Walker. He was the first one out. Yeah. And by the way, I'm, I'm not saying this to mean Scott Walker. I love Scott Walker. Yeah. I think he was incredible. But it just shows sometimes you think the person who's quote the one is not the one. And, and I think DeSantis has been an amazing governor. No, I'm not criticizing him. I'm just saying I don't want him coronated. I want to see these guys on the stage. I want to see what they have to say and put them side by side. And that's a good process. So, uh, you know, and is Trump a disruptor at this point? Absolutely. Um, he may be the only person, you know, my, my friends at the Wall Street Journal say he's the only guy who could lose Joe Biden. That's, but, that's, that's uh, Actually, though, you know, the funny thing is when he started to gain traction, in 2016, they said the same thing about him. He's yeah. the only one who could lose yeah, to Hillary true. Clinton, yeah. and it turned out he maybe he was the only one who could win that year. So it's yeah. it's hard to say. I want, I want to get your opinion on one other uh, race. Well, not yeah. potential race. Race should Mitch McConnell go? Should Rick Scott replace him? Uh, you know, I'm of divided opinion on that. I mean, I think Mitch McConnell has been an effective minority leader. Uh, and he, whoever it's going to be is going to be the minority leader for another two years because the Democrats have won the Senate, but. Um, you know, he's old. He's really old. Yeah, he's 80. And so it might be time for a new person. Now, I, I will say this, too. And, and I know a lot of people probably listen to the show don't like Mitch McConnell. And I don't know him all that well. But I will say this. If you like the people that are on the court today, um, Mitch McConnell is one of the people who really— Yeah, he gets credit. Well, he, he gets McC credit for that. Yeah, he, he cares not a lot about the economic issues, Dan, that you and I— care about that's not his forte right but he has he has masterfully handled um the you know the supreme court and other you know judicial nominations in a very effective way he is steve moore economist author of govzilla enjoy your conference at mar-a-lago steve yeah. I'll, I'll report back to you guys and let you know how it goes trump is speaking on friday night so uh same speech but we will see all right very Tell good him to tighten it up <laughs> An hour I'll, is I'll just a little too long. Uh, yeah, well, that's always the case with Trump. I mean, I just hope it's not a, not another hour and a half. Or... <laughs> oh, hunker down. All right, thank you, Stephen Moore, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, yesterday in his announcement of his third run for President of the United States, former President Trump tackled a range of issues over the course of a more than hour long speech. One of them, violent crime, violent street crime in America's big cities. He said this. The governors and mayors are supposed to ask for the help, and they would never ask for the help. And yet people are being shot and killed at random like nobody's ever seen before. And we sent in the National Guard in Minneapolis and in other places. In Seattle, we went and we were, uh, we were getting ready to go. And they took over part of the city, and the governors 
The Democrats don't want to ever ask to do anything because they don't want to shake things up. In the meantime, the cities are rotting, and they are indeed cesspools of blood. So we're going to go and help them, even if they don't want the help. We will give our police back their authority, resources, power, legal protection, and we will give them back their respect. They're great people. And I will immediately launch a no-holds-barred national campaign to dismantle the gangs and clean out the nests of organized street crime. Well, I don't understand what he's talking about because, as I understand it from uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul and others, including our very own Spalding, violent crime? Violent crime is a red state problem. Oh, that's right. Red state more problem. More road states have more violent crimes than we do. Complete red state, state problem. I, I've uh, run the numbers on this show before, but I'm no academic. So uh, to help us with that issue, as well as a few others, please be joined again by Will Riley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to be back on the show. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, the violent crime, as uh, Kathy Hochul pointed out, and the Democrats, you know, mainly a, a red state issue. All this talk about uh, all this obsessing about violent crime in big blue cities or in states run by Democrats at the executive level um, is just all projection by conservatives like me. Yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the dumber back and forth that's going on in the country right now. Um you know, it's true that uh, brothers and rednecks, quote-unquote, in red states do have a crime rate, but the, the actual reality is that across the red states and the blue states, and the red-blue difference is like 1%, but across the red states and the blue states, crime is concentrated in large, liberally governed cities. So in Kentucky, I mean, certainly there are some tough places up in the highlands, but about half of the crime is is centered in the city of Louisville. I mean, in Tennessee, it's the city of Memphis. And this is just true across ethnic lines. In West Virginia, it's the city of Charleston. And I mean, obviously in Illinois, you know, something like a third of the people in the entire state, a half, if you include the metro area, live in Chicago, and that, that's where you see crime. So the argument that it is red states, these giant newly red states like Georgia and Texas, that have a crime problem, that, that's just what we call a statistical game. I mean, what you're doing is taking, you know, Dallas and Houston and Austin and San Antonio and so on, and you're, you're extending that to the, the entirety of the state. And there's, there's very little mass gang crime in, say, Midland, Texas. So that's, I, don't, I don't think people are going to fall for that. Yeah, I don't think they did, actually, even where governors like Hochul survived. They have such a huge margin for error going in. But I, I don't think that uh, particularly people who are voting on crime, which happens to mainly be the denizens of some of the big cities, you know, the, there was some movement there or there was just a tapping out. I can't bring myself to vote for Republicans, but I'm not going to vote for people who are telling me that crime is not a problem when I see what's happening in my neighborhood. And you saw that happen in some big cities, too. Like, for example, Chicago turnout was down 30 percent in a city that's obviously, you know, three to one dem to Republican, like a lot of big cities. People are afraid of getting robbed on the way to the polls. Well, that's, um, well, that that's too. Yeah. <laughs> our, uh, so like all, our our DA all, Kim Fox, yeah, she she made that you know very clear that our democracy was under attack because she said her eighty year old aunt was still afraid to go to the polls to vote. 
Yeah, and I mean, the the impression that these politicians often give is that that's because of white supremacists or something like that, or the, the Republicans will sometimes say it's, it's the Black Panthers. No, that's just because crime is up 50%. I mean, the poll is in the local church four blocks from your house. You might not want to walk there in a lot of areas of Chicago. Uh, no, the the reality is that crime is up. The, the idea that it's hard, that it's mysterious to track crime or illegal migration is really kind of bizarre. We don't always do a great job in the social sciences, but two of the things we've had solid B-plus statistics on for 50 years are the crime rate and the rate of illegal border crossings. So, I mean, when you look at homicide, which is the most reliable data we have on crime, murders during the whole Black Lives Matter era, and remember, the entire pitch here was as people come to trust the police, crime's going to go down. The police are going to shoot fewer people, and crime overall is going to go down. In reality, we've seen murders increase from, I believe, 13,194 in 2014. This is uh, the year of Michael Brown, to about 21,000, 22,000 this past year. So we've seen this astonishing 50% increase in murder. And that's definitely affected Hispanics. It's affected urban whites. But the group most affected is black people who now make up more than half of all murder offenders and victims. So, I mean, in terms of race relations, for example, it's hard to think of, of something that could be worse than that. It's just this astonishing statistic that's never mentioned. I mean, except sometimes on the Internet and, you know, heated exchanges. But 50 to 60 percent of the, the murder defendants are now black. That certainly is something that if you remember Chicago in the 70s, 80s, there was a lot of crime, but you weren't seeing that particular pattern. So we've, we've seen almost the opposite of what was promised. And now someone, whether that's Trump or DeSantis or whoever replaces Biden, he's not running again. But someone's going to have to look at the cities and say, well, this isn't acceptable. What's going on in Portland, for example? Um, What's going on in the southern cities, Little Rock? You can't have crime rates like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, unfortunately, like in Chicago, the power structure here is fixated on a noose, allegedly, that was found on the site of of, uh, Obamaland, the Obama presidential playground um you know you wrote this book hate crime hoax when you heard the story about a noose found on the construction site stopping all work hundred thousand dollar reward what was your initial reaction well my initial reaction actually is is going to be pretty boring because i'm a law and order guy i was a lawyer before i became a professor i i think in every one of these cases you let the cops do their job there's an outside chance that there's some nut that snuck in there i mean barack obama did make a lot of opponents in chicago now, my personal impression, is this likely to be real? No. One of the things that I found writing the book is that the mundane, ordinary stories of crime are generally real. Um, the skepticism people feel toward ordinary female claims of sexual assault, that's generally unjustified. Like, I was abused after having a few too many and coming home from a bar. The same thing with male stories of brawling. Like, I was... The only black guy there, there were three Irish-American guys. I was beaten in a fight. It might have had a racial element. Crime tends to be dumb and mundane. But when you see these crazy flamboyant stories, Jussie Smollett, Yasmin Saweed, someone scaled the 10-foot fence around the presidential library and hung a perfectly tied hangman's noose, I mean, the odds of that happening really are actually pretty low. Like, there aren't a lot of Confederates in that region of Chicago. And one <laughs> last sentence here, we just, we saw yesterday this happen. 
there had been a series of bomb threats that were made to HBCUs, that were made to historically black colleges. And in an executive role with a historically black college, I've been very aware of this. Like, we've been tracking it. So on. It turned out that the perp was one teenage kid who was probably black. This ran in USA Today yesterday. So the whole hysteria, all the FBI agents that went after these guys, so on, it turned out to be either one or a few kids goofing around, and the perps are referred to as diverse. So (laughs) it it didn't happen, and we kind of knew it wasn't going to happen, right? Like there wasn't actually a call center somewhere staffed by Nazis that was contacting Howard and these other great institutions, and there was no way to kind of star 69 the numbers. It just that just didn't make sense in modern America, and it didn't make sense because it wasn't real. Well, this Lakeside uh, Alliance construction company that is African-American-owned, there's four entrances to the place, and it's very, you know, under tight security, and they're thinking that it might be an inside job, and they're offering a $100,000 reward. Uh, do you think that's just a little bit much there? Well, I'd be interested in seeing who they catch. I mean, again, this is... So there was an incident at the University of Missouri where in a dormitory that was a mix of tough, white, black, southern students that got along very well, a lot of athletes, someone apparently broke into the building and drew a swastika in human feces on a wall of one of the restrooms. And many people, every source I've ever talked to in law enforcement has said, there's no way that happened. The guys in the building just would have handled it. If it did happen, it's one of those guys who got drunk playing a prank. Like, there's no chance someone's going to penetrate that environment who's a random racist from outside and and do this. And it's the same thing here. I mean, if you have Chicago's major black-owned construction company with, you know, armed guards at the entrances to a billion-dollar building, who would be the guy that would get in to do this? I mean, a former, you know, military member, I mean... it seems far more likely that one of the guards to make a point, I'm not accusing anybody, but to make a point about continuing racism, which sometimes does still happen, did this, and it got way out of control. It went to a level that he didn't expect. That seems strategically more likely than like an assassin got around every guy working for the company, around every guard, hung the noose, and then again escaped over what's like a nine or ten foot fence. Yeah, it was so a, you have to have practical questions. Yeah, right. yeah, it was it was like a scene from Mission Impossible to uh, set that up. I mean, <laughs> he, he, here's the thing: it, it's but the, the the larger point here, and this uh, is one of the points in your book as well, hate crime hoax, is as long as there is demand, the race hustlers will create supply if none actually exists organically. They'll create it because they need to propagate the idea that America is this inherently racist place and there's structural racism and everything is everything that uh, uh, is identified as an inequality is the result of said racism and we need justifications for reparations and so on and so forth. It's just endless. The demands that can be made if you can uh, advance the flag of structural racism. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. The, the classic line that uh, was condensed from what we both just said, I think Tucker Carlson said this, is that the demand for racism is beginning to dramatically exceed the supply. Right. I mean, the, the percent of marriages that are interracial right now is something like 17 among whites, 27 overall. It might be a little off on the figure. 
But the majority of people going to work or football practice or whatever, the military recruiting station, aren't extraordinary racial bigots. There might be a fight here and there. But if you're looking for the nooses hanging from buildings or the white or the black person beaten by 12 members of the other group or, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, there was a you know, the symbol of John McCain burnt into a Obama campaign worker's face. You're going to have to put out some effort to make that happen, probably. And I think this is why you see so much of this on college campuses, which are in reality, for all their flaws, the most tolerant places in the world. All these multicolored kids hooking up at after-hours clubs and parties. But you hear constantly that there is this ongoing struggle. You're, You're taking classes in communist theory. So you might start to wonder why there are no nooses ever seen. And of the pool of people that start to wonder that, there's a certain percentage that are going to hang a noose. Well, and and but there is there's a cost to this too. It's not just all fun and games and uh, silly kids with their with their you know uh, superficial understanding of of political philosophy. The 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 opportunity cost just start there is that it deflects attention away from serious problems like the endemic crime in major cities we were just talking about, where people actually are being oppressed. The majority of law-abiding people in these neighborhoods that are shooting galleries and that have essentially been been, been relegated as sanctuaries from law enforcement by the political leadership of these cities. Yeah, I I think it's an inner... One of the things that's kind of interesting is that this is an illustration of our priorities. Like on Twitter and Facebook today, I I said some throwaway line before going to the the dojo early this morning, but it was was essentially that intolerance is much less of a moral failing, especially for men, than, say, cowardice. I mean, there are all kinds of problems that you can have in life. We, We seem to have focused on a few things right now, like racism to the exclusion of almost everything else. So to some extent, if someone did hang a, if someone made a statement about a former political leader by mistying a rope and throwing it over a fence, you know, or sure, arrest this bum if you catch him, but who cares? Why would that be more significant in any sense than a murder of a black man, or for that matter of anyone else, a white guy by a black guy? Right. There's no logical reason, unless you're trying to tie this into this picture of, you know, the old race wars never ended. This symbolizes something that goes on all the time. The noose is eternally around our necks. I mean, you can hear Al Sharpton's voice intoning right now. <laughs> right. And right. But the reality is that that's not true. The last recorded lynching in the U.S. to count poor James Byrd, I think, was in 1966. So there's there's just no evidence that there's a massive ethnic conflict in the North when we integrated in 1910. There's just no evidence that there is this sort of massive ethnic conflict going on, which is one reason I write. I think, like, I'm pretty pro-black. I don't dislike blacks. I don't dislike whites. I'm not getting paid a great amount for this. It's just this is a harmful kind of false narrative. Like, are there Confederates putting nooses up on the Obama Presidential Center? I mean, of course not. Like, the... The extent to which people believe this and to which their lives are shaped by this this miasmatic background fear, I mean, the more that's allowed, the worse. And this, this, this doesn't just get into race in the American upper middle class, by the way. This, this is everything. The average woman in the USA believes that 10% of the population has died of COVID, for example. Right. 
So right. just being afraid of everything for no reason is not good for you. Well said. He is Will Riley, Associate Professor of Poli-Sci at Kentucky State University, a historically black college, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM560, The Answer. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, time for our latest installment of sports and politics. Got a couple of stories here. It's been a while, huh? Uh, The uh, Team USA... We're talking about soccer. Oh, your favorite sport. Should we call John Cass, too? Well, John Cass, John Cass should what? hang his head in shame for being a soccer fan. Why? Because Team USA is making some sort of statement at the World Cup in Qatar. Yeah, I, I saw. Yeah, they are redesigning the crest of their uniforms with rainbow colors to show solidarity with the LGBTQ plus community because... What is there to do in soccer other than virtue signal? Um, if you don't want to play in the World Cup in Qatar, then why don't you just not show up? If you're so offended by uh, Qatar's view on homosexuality, and I'm not endorsing it. But... No, but their opinion's different than ours, so, you know, right? Where, shame, shame, shame. Where's the tolerance right, for the tolerant for non-Western cultures? But I just like they took a, it's a, it symbolized the red, white, and blue. It says USA, and then it's red, white, and blue, and they put rainbow instead. You got to represent your your country. Yeah, it's all about. But, you know, it said they're virtue signaling. So, something else though too um, on this, because they said uh, uh, the chief comms officer for this fake sport, our rainbow badge has an important and consistent role in the identity of U.S. soccer. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Megan. Rapino, Rapino, whatever her name is. As a part of our approach for any match or event, we include rainbow branding to support and embrace the LGBT community as well as to promote a spirit of inclusiveness and welcoming to all fans across the globe. You know what um, crest uh, symbolizes inclusiveness and a welcoming spirit? What? The American flag. Yeah, yeah. The American flag does. Yeah, it's been repurposed now. Uh huh. Now it no, it's not been repurposed. It's been subordinated to the LGBTQ plus flag, hasn't it? Men's soccer team's not going to last last long in the World Cup, though. So if you needed another reason to not watch soccer, to you know, see which is the greatest country in the world, Portugal or Spain? Thank you. Thank I mean, you, is this Simpsons. the right way to? Address human rights concerns in the Gulf states. Yawn. Uh, All right, that's enough soccer. Um, uh, Quickly, bicycling. (laughs) It's cycling, but okay. Yeah, bicycling. It's cycling. Uh, Austin Killips is a dude, and he won the UCI Elite Women's Division of this uh, international cyclocross event in Massachusetts. Another dude standing on the podium (laughs) with two women. I don't know, pictures printed out. All right, what's the name? Austin Killips. So, All right, I'll check out Austin Killips. So uh, what's her name there, the uh, Pennsylvania swimmer? Um, Did you forget her name already? Oh, um, Him, wait, 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 hold on. Clonfest. Yeah, Leah Thomas. Leah Thomas. Yeah. 
Move on because Malia Thomas. have de- do two genders. There's a, exactly. There's a new uh, dude pretending to be a woman, trying to dominate a women's division, or trying to dominate a women's sport. This is women's bicycling. Uh, Austin Killips. So put that on the board, Austin Killips. Well, he took a spot away from a woman who's probably been training her whole life for that event. Hmm. Oh well, uh, no one cares. Um, and then this the issue of NILs. This is what I really wanted to get to, get your reaction to this, since this is your bailiwick. Maybe uh, in a, uh, if if you had been in this era, you could have been, oh, you know, making money oh. at the collegiate level as a female athlete. Do you think? Okay. So you know, I just saw a woman of a picture of Austin. You know the the NILs, the name, image, likeness licensing that allows some college athletes to make money, depending on if companies think they're marketable. But you can make a lot of money. And um, the New York Times is upset that a couple of female athletes that are making seven figures through the NIL uh, allowance in uh, college sports are good looking. LSU gymnast well, I, Olivia Dunn. Oh, no, I got to Google that. And uh, twin basketball players at the University of Miami, Haley and Hannah Cavender. Okay. Olivia Dunn and Haley and Hannah Cavender. And uh, if you go look at them, yeah, they're, you know, they're pretty attractive young women. I yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have Google their this. portfolios on me. You can go <laughs> you online. You don't have their and look. Instagram page? They're linked their to, the, to the article. So you please go ahead and look at it. Olivia Dunn, LSU gymnast, Miami. Uh, University of Miami basketball twins, Haley and Hannah Cavender. Uh, And um, the uh, New York Times is expressing concern how some women jocks, Paige Sporanek, are monetizing traditional notions of female beauty. And I wondered if you were concerned about that. I mean, if they've got it, work it, use it. You're only young once. This isn't going to last forever. They're beautiful, by the way. Wow. I'll get back to you. I'm watching their YouTube right now. Seven. Well, that's why they're making seven figures. And you know what? Good for them. Professional models make that. Why not? Like your girl, Giselle Bunchen. No, but the point is that the NIL licenses should be given based on your accomplishments on the field or in the pool or on the mats as opposed to just your beauty. Because, you know, I don't know if Olivia Dunn is the best female gymnast. Probably in co- in uh, Division One, but oh. she's a Division One gymnast at LSU. But she's she's pretty, and so she's sure getting seven figures. She's flexible in this. Video. I don't know. Well, she's a gymnast. I well, don't know I if know. Haley and Hannah Cavender are the best basketball players, but they're the ones that have the NIL licenses. And what about people that are ugly that are better athletes? Why don't they get contracts? That's too bad. That's just deal with what God gives you. And if you can make money off of this and sell a clothing line, I hear that they see that they're promoting a makeup line, jeans. Do it. But that's I mean, a, but that's yeah. that's inequitable. Well, too bad. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey dot Pro answer line six four six three six D A Turnkey dot Pro oh, text these line. Twins. Wow, whoa, third in college where University of Miami. Yeah, I bet people go to the games too. So University of Miami is probably making money off. The, of those twins may have me go down to Coral Gables to take in some <laughs> University of Miami women's basketball. Three one two six four two five six zero zero Turnkey dot Pro answer line six four six three six Type in DA, then a quick comment. I think people, women who are biatching about this should just sit this one out. What about uh, male impersonators in the New York Times newsroom who are really upset about it? <laughs> they should just, you know, step off, too. This has been, I mean, honestly, we 
we tell women, young women, to advocate for yourselves to make money, to be like men, to be competitive in in the workforce and in life, and that they're doing what they can do with the assets that they have. Because again, one day they'll be gone. Those assets. Oh sure. <laughs> no question about wow. that. Wow. By by what by about like by by thirty. They have a great great layup inside the paint, Dan. Tony in Downers Grove. Hey, Dan, Amy, isn't it isn't it funny how everybody cries about equity, and here you have the NIL, and it's giving women a chance to make as much as they can if they yeah. can, and you're going to have people crying about it. But on the uh, on the whole NIL NLI thing, Dan, that's just uh, that that's going to ruin college sports. That and the transfer portal when it comes to the uh, major sports. But that's just my why. Why, why do you, why do you think the NIL is going to ruin it? Um, well, if you're, well, I, I'm a pretty, I, I love college football, even though my team. Who's your team? Who's your team? Texas. I went to Texas. No. Mm-hmm. You have good no. years, you have bad years. That's yeah. right. So what, but what you have is you have, you know, players who are, are getting paid more than other players. And I think it, it, it's eventually, and you already see it. There's a receiver for Texas and there's no data on this, but. He he was great last year, and now this year he's kind of for no reason. He's way down. I think the undercurrent, you're not going to hear it, but I think suddenly it's a disruption in the locker room, and then you have the transfer portal, and so the kids are not. There's no loyalty to the school whatsoever. It's it's just it's it's one big shell game, and oh, it's fun to watch because teams are competitive, but it's not. It, it hasn't been a collegiate sport, you know a a. Uh, amateur sport for quite some time, <laughs> but nobody wants to really admit that and tackle the gorilla in the room. This is, this is like pro maneuvers, just on a college scale. Thanks for the call, Tony. So you but, think but, they've become more selfish instead of I, I, team players? I, well, I also like the idea that that um, these leftists are promoting meritocracy. Hey, this should be based on who's the best. Who's the what, since when do we start basing anything on no. who's the best? Who you sco- market yourself? Who scores the most or who's the best at their job? They're just the opposite of that. They're identitarians for everything else in the name of equity. But when it comes to somebody who essentially is profiting because of their identity, their physical presentation, then all of a sudden, you know, they're all uh, they're all aghast that uh, they're not being considered based on their performance on the on the field of, of play, right? Isn't that sort of funny? Isn't that sort of interesting? But I, I understand they're completely unbounded by their own hypocrisy. That's just sort of a, a signature of the left on everything. I, I get it. I understand. Uh, but, you know, it, I mean, I know one college softball player. Okay. College, female college softball player. I, I know I get, one name comes to mind. And? Jenny Finch. Okay. Why? Because she was good looking and she got a lot of notoriety because she was good looking. Why do I know who Paige Sporanic is? Why does everybody know? Because of her, I mean, she was a golfer. She was like sort of a, you know, professional golfer for a minute. But because of her videos and her. The way she physical, marketed herself. Physical presence, yes. Yeah. And people liked it. So she made money off of it. Yeah. Good I, for her. Honey's making money. I'm all for it. This just in sex sells. Oh, it does? Uh. Oh. Oh my virgin but, ears. But see, the problem is that these, um, you know, these uh, man-hating shrews, at places like the New York Times. I mean, the, remember, we're right now. This is we're we're sort of midway through completely 
reimagining and reengineering the human condition. And so they find this, of course, objectionable because most of these people are ugly on the inside and the outside. Well, they'll decide if they have a Me Too moment, not you people, not men in the, you know, mis- misogynistic men that are sitting there being offended for them, please. Stu in Barrington. Hey, it's Mulligan Stu, but um, there's a story behind that. Uh, I bet there is. I uh, remembered a uh, show on PBS that was called uh, Between Time and Timbuktu. It was based on the stories of Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, it was uh, uh, about an astronaut, a, a commoner that uh, won a contest to get shot in the space. And he goes between time and Timbuktu all around and time traveling in essence. And he gets to an era where there is the handicapper general and it shows a lovely ballerina and a very handsome uh, dance partner. And the handicapper general goes in and puts a mask on the ballerina and waits on the arms of the uh, male dancer or the, the dance partner. So they can't do a, you know, a, I think it was probably from. Uh, yeah, the story. Uh, this is a, this. This is the story of Harry. This is the. This is Harrison Bergeron. That's the Vonnegut piece you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's it. Well, it, it was. I saw it in sixty in seventy one when I was in college at SRU. Well, that's the that's Harvard the that's the story. But your your point is well taken. Yeah. So this in the name of yeah. I mean you know so Vonnegut like uh, Orwell was ahead of his time. This is exactly where we are now with the left and those yeah. status where yeah they want to everything has to be equity, which is a quality of outcome, which is yeah. the opposite of equality. And so right the the beautiful person you put a mask on, the fast person you have you, you know tie a weight to is now that's that's the whole point. That's exactly where they're going. Exact uh, uh, very yeah. good, Stu. Thanks for the reference, Don Bloomingdale. I, I hope this applies to the Paralympic athletes. My friend's daughter's a two-time uh, Paralympic swimmer, and she's good friends with Jessica Long, who's just a gorgeous woman, and so is my buddy's daughter. So they're they're getting they're picking up sponsors because of this kind of thing. So I think it's great. I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah, sure. Why not? More the merrier. Thanks for the call, Don. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.